The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Wednesday, June 29th, 2016. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. 41 people, as of this taping, the number is now up to 41 people killed in a suicide bombing at Kamel Ataturk Airport in Turkey. A year ago, actually less, I was at that airport. I was at that checkpoint, and I remember saying to my girlfriend, Michelle, this is crazy. Look at all these people who are in line, soft targets, don't know if I use that phrase, but we are so vulnerable. So if you haven't heard how it works in this particular airport is there's a pre-screening of luggage before your luggage is screened and everyone is near to the street with all their bags and it's just people and bags waiting to get screened and that makes all these people a target and I remember thinking if I were a terrorist, this is exactly where I would attack. Well, it was just too obvious for the terrorists to ignore. You know, after 9-11, I also remember there were these stories of there there could be a hundred Al-Qaeda cells in the United States. Serious people believe this. And I remember thinking to myself, well, well, that's it. They don't all have to hijack an airline. We kept doubling and tripling down on airliner security. Just have to get a few guns or drive some U-Hauls into crowds. Well, that never happened because there really weren't a hundred terrorist cells. But we're seeing the effects of soft targets and guns. And it leads me to thinking you can't do, we can't do as a society, no society can't do everything. Hell, we can't even do enough to prevent terrorist attack by building walls, by building fortresses, by identifying targets, and by saying we're going to deny the terrorists those targets. Because the target identification process basically goes like this. What was the last place that was attacked? Let's shore that up. And if you know anything about how any body works, when you brace one stress point, all the stress just travels up. I once did an interview about these new basketball shoes. John Starks was endorsing them. And they were all about helping your ankle, securing your ankle. They were extra tight around the ankle because a lot of basketball players have ankle injuries. And I talked to an expert and he said, yeah, that would work. Your ankle will be better. But knee injuries are going to go up 20, 30, maybe 100 percent because that's how a body works. That's how a body politics works. The encouraging thing, if you will, is that one vulnerability that it's said that we have, that there are radical Islamists within our midst. It's just so overwhelmingly untrue. America is actually really good at integrating its Muslims. There have been a couple of extremely high-profile examples where that has not been the case. But this protects us a lot more than a sweep of mosques or keeping out people or keeping out the second generation of perfectly integrated people. The thing that I think really can change is our perception. And in fact, I think it will change, though I'm not exactly saying it will change because we're going to become more high-minded individuals. I liken it to school shootings. And after Columbine, all similar school shootings were given a lot of media attention and they scared us. But eventually, they became so omnipresent that they stopped scaring us. This is a defense mechanism, I guess, that we have as animals, things that are unusual in our vision, in our perception, stand out. And when they become more usual, maybe they become less scary. 
So you can argue, but they shouldn't be less scary. They're school shootings. That's true. But in this nation of 350 million with 15,000 homicides a year, school shootings are a tiny, tiny blip. Mass murders are a tiny, tiny bit of that. And terrorism, however you define terrorism, from every abortion clinic to every uh, neo-Nazi group that get, fights it out with the police, all everything that can be defined as terrorism, these under 100 incidents of terrorism a year – possibly will begin to be understood or at least felt as not that unusual. And while that's a sad thing, I do think it will help us get through the day a little bit easier. On the show today, I spiel about the army. The army has always been known as a unit, an entity that is not afraid to roll up its sleeves and get to work. But until now, they literally could not roll up their sleeves. But first, a new CNN poll has Clinton and Trump running neck and neck. Although, same story, further down, there are two better polls that have Clinton with a wide lead. So what do you believe? What if there was only one poll, a poll of polls, that was better than any single poll? Well, there is. And 538's Harry Enten is here to hype it to the heavens. It's here, it's here, the model is here. 538's model for who will win the general election. Maybe in years past, we needed it more because there was a bigger question. But this year, the stakes are higher. Yes, this is that general election when we're at a crossroads and our choice has never been more important. That election, that one that you've heard about. Well, here to talk about the 538 election model and the polls and Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton is Harry Enten. He's a senior political writer and analyst for 538 as he fills his brain with the best polls polls available. He fills his body with diet sunkissed and fig newtons. Hello, Harry. Oh, hello. I don't have a diet sunkissed on me, but uh, maybe I'll pick one up afterwards. So I prefer diet crush yeah. to diet sunkissed, I should just say. All right. Let's go from junk food to junk polls. Uh, I know what the real clear politics average is saying. They're dumb, but useful. They just take every poll that comes out. I don't even think you could disqualify yourself for being a poll that's counted in there. And they take the average of the polls. It's a really, really blunt, not too refined way of doing it. And your model does it better. But since that's what's out there, are there any polls in the in the real clear politics average we should discount? How much to heart should we take this average, this poll of polls that says that Clinton's up by about seven? To me, that's fairly good, nationally speaking. I mean, you can weight the polls a different way, but all of the polls have her leading. All of the national polls over the last month have had her ahead. doesn't matter how you take the average, whether we're taking it, pollster.com or Real Clear Politics. It's going to be somewhere in the area of five to eight points, depending on how exactly you do it. Uh, so Clinton's clearly ahead. It's a matter of the margin. Um, of course, here at 538, we don't dismiss any poll unless it's fraudulent, but we also weight the polls by past accuracy, which we believe gives us a better understanding of where the race actually stands. Is this the real secret sauce of your model, how you weight the polls? I mean, you have you have two models. You have polls and polls plus. So let's just take a look at the polls. Is all the 538 model is weighting the polls based on how good they've been and then giving a new prediction or is there anything else? Well, we also weight by the house effect, right? So if there's one particular pollster that seems to overwhelmingly give Donald Trump better numbers than anybody else, then we do wait for that fact. So if, let's say, a Rasmussen poll comes out and it shows Trump only down by two points. Well, we know from the past that Rasmussen polls have tended to lean a little bit more Republican. Yeah. So we can take that into effect and our 
polling average adjusts for that. Is this the model that Nate, that kind of made Nate's name nationally with, with tweaks along the way as you got more information, but is this it? I mean, yeah, I mean, it, it, it's the Nate same is Nate thing, Silver, the founder of 538, I should say. Right, it, it, it's not my uncle Nate. Um, <laughs> but I, yeah, I mean, for the most part, that same general idea of taking the state polls, not discounting any of them, waiting by past accuracy and waiting for house effects. What's the polls plus model? What is that all about? The Polls Plus model, I mean, the big thing about the Polls Plus model is it takes into account, say, the economy. Historically speaking, the uh, the economy has added something to our knowledge of where the election was going to end up going. So that, for instance, in 1948, the polls had Thomas Dewey leading uh, Harry Truman, but the economy, in fact, suggested something different. It suggested that Harry Truman would do better than the polls said at the time. And if you had looked at the economy, you would have said, hmm, those polls might be a little bit off. So our polls plus model takes into account the economy in addition to taking into account state level polls. So it's just the economy because sometimes there are certain models that say, hey, if you look at these three indicators and one will be an economic indicator and one will be, you know, right track, wrong track, and one will be popularity of uh, incumbent in office, whatever. So some polls say, if you take these three, this is the magical elixir for predicting a president, but you just look at economy. I mean, the big thing in our thing is, is, is the economy. Yes. And if you look at the economy right now, we basically have one that is about average. Historically speaking, that would probably indicate that we'd end up with a fairly close presidential race. Uh, but of course, when you add the polls with the where we are in the economy, we expect a race that at this point, Hillary Clinton is favored in. Yeah. So give me the numbers. What's your polls and what's your polls plus saying right now? Well, uh, essentially, as Nate has uh, previously disclosed uh, during one of our podcasts uh, when we were out in San Francisco, the polls plus basically has Clinton at about a 70 percent favorite to win. Of course, that means that Donald Trump has a 30 percent chance of winning. So he could win the election. Uh, We shouldn't dismiss it while our polls-only model has Clinton at about an 80% chance to win. Again, Donald Trump still has a shot at 20%, and we have months to go. But historically speaking, when a candidate is up in the polls by this much at this point, and the economy is where it's at, we should expect that Hillary Clinton's going to win more times than not. There was a time, and this was about middle of uh, May, when a few polls showed Trump up by a little. I think all of those were in the almost within the margin of error. Maybe there was one poll that showed Trump up by five outside the margin of error. I guess the general consensus was the reason for that was that the Democratic race was still in disarray. And that was like the moment it looked like Republicans were gelling. Is that our understanding of it? And that was, you know, the high point for Trump because there was a confluence of events that were helping him and those events are no longer true. Yeah, I think that that's in large part true. So when Trump took the lead, I think it was in three or four polls. One was the ABC Washington Post poll. One was a Rasmussen poll. And there was one other poll that yeah, Fox my News mind. poll. Yeah. Fox News poll. That was right after Trump had essentially clinched the nomination. Republicans were gathering around him as if he were a normal Republican, while at the same time, the Democratic race was still ongoing. Plus, there was a lot of positive media coverage for Trump while Clinton was struggling a little bit in some of those primaries in May. That situation has changed. Now, Clinton has won her nomination. There's been a lot of negative press about Trump. And I would argue, in fact, looking at some of the polls, that Clinton has a little bit more ground to gain if she's able to pick up some straggling Bernie Sanders supporters. But the events that allowed Trump to gain in the polls in May are no longer active in the month of June. That doesn't mean he can't lead at a later point. It just means that it'll be more difficult because he's already gotten that bump 
from winning the Republican nomination. Yeah, I was going to say, you know, there has been a lot of coverage saying, well, Hillary's uh, consolidated the Democrats, not officially. I mean, Bernie says he's going to vote for her, but he still hasn't essentially endorsed her. So maybe there's still that bump to go. Right, exactly. We know from the polls that although the Sanders supporters have come a little bit more towards Clinton, there are still a decent number of them that are still out. And if she's able to pick those up, instead of having, say, a five to eight point lead, she may end up with something like an eight to 10 or 11 point lead. And indeed, that, for instance, is kind of what the ABC Washington Post poll showed over the weekend, which was when the Bernie Sanders supporters really sided with Clinton, she was able to leap out to a 12-point lead. That's not where I think the race is at this point, and I'm not sure it's ever going to get there, but it's a possibility if the Sanders supporters end up coalescing behind Clinton. Okay, so there are still a few big events to come, uh, picks of the vice president, the conventions, and the debates. How much of a bump should either candidate or any candidate expect from a vice presidential pick? Not very much. You know, historically speaking, I did a little research in 2012, which indicated that maybe a point or two, you know, not very much. Now, the conventions, candidates usually get a bump, but is there a rule of thumb? Does the trailing candidate do better? Is it all dependent on actually how they do in the convention, even which convention comes first? You know, it's better to have the closing argument last. Uh, it, it really does depend on the year and which is the better argument. I mean, to me, the convention is probably the most important of the three that you mentioned. If a candidate clearly holds a lead after the conventions, then that candidate is almost certainly going to win the general election. Let's say if Hillary Clinton holds a six-point lead after both the conventions, she's probably going to win in the fall. Why? who gets the bigger bump? Normally, it would be the candidate with the lower name ID. Uh, mm-hmm. But both of these candidates have huge name IDs. So I really wouldn't expect, you know, necessarily very much. Remember last time around, it was Mitt Romney who arguably had the lower name ID than Barack Obama. But in fact, it was the Democrats who got the larger bump counting coming out of their convention, mostly because I think most people thought it was better choreographed while the Republicans had Clint Eastwood talking to a chair on stage. Yes. But during a debate, I would think that most people would think that uh, Hillary would win. Um, so if Trump even acquits himself well, might there be a possibility for a big bump? And let's remember, Romney beat Obama in his first debate, and he saw a little bit of a rise, but not a huge one. Right. I, I, I'm a little bit unsure of how much of a bump Trump might get from a debate, even if he did particularly well. Remember, last time around, Mitt Romney did very well in the first debate, most analysts agreed. And he saw a fairly decent-sized bump nationally, but the state-level polling, in fact, showed very little bump for him. I guess 2000 might be the one example where you may say, okay, George W. Bush acquitted himself well on stage. Ergo, he was able to catch Gore and maybe take a lead in some of the polls. But for the most part, debates have not really moved the numbers very much. And any numbers that they do move, they then tend to rebound back to where they were after all the debates have been completed. Since this is an election with the two most loathed candidates ever to run, how much should we look at maybe unconventional metrics, like how how big the negatives are for each candidate. In a way, they're each trying, the main argument of each is don't vote for the other one. Maybe it really is a crazy election just on that basis. I would argue that this is one of the craziest elections I've ever seen, even if we stopped it right now. And you are spiritually 60. And I'm spiritually (laughs) 60. Some might even say I'm spiritually 80. Um, But uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a nutty campaign both candidates are loathed. I mean, Hillary Clinton would be a dead duck if the Republicans nominated someone who didn't decide to offend pretty much every group every five seconds. Tell me about the state polls, because even though I see in national polls, it's a wide-ish gap for Hillary Clinton. The state polls, the important battleground state polls, aren't reflecting that. 
Well, it depends which battleground polls you're looking at. So if you were, for instance, to look at the states of Ohio and especially Pennsylvania, it does seem that Hillary Clinton leads there, but by not as wide of a margin as you'd expect if she was leading by, say, 6.2 percentage points nationally. However, if you were to look at the state of Florida and you took a look at all of the polls that were conducted in the state of Florida during the month of June and the Real Clear Politics average, which you have said numerous things about, I will merely say that I enjoy that website. Um, If you were to look at that average, it does not include all the polls from the state of Florida. If you were to take an average from all the polls in the state of Florida from the month of June, it shows Hillary Clinton with a 6.2 percentage point lead in Mm. Florida. If Hillary Clinton wins the state of Florida, where the polling currently matches the polling that we have nationally, it's going to be very, very difficult for Donald Trump to win the election. It's possible. It's yeah. possible. There's but the list, of states, the list of states that he has to do includes turning around some really blue states, some shockingly blue states. It would be difficult to do. And so to me, when you look at Florida, which isn't too surprising and has a large Hispanic population that's growing, the state polls, in fact, reflect generally what's going on in the national polls. And I would not be particularly worried if I were Hillary Clinton that there'd be a wide difference between, say, her winning the popular vote by three points and then somehow losing the Electoral College. I wouldn't bet on that. Maybe she could win the popular vote by a point and lose the Electoral College. But I think the two are going to end up being fairly close to one another. Have we seen, do we have any good indication of what Trump's ceiling might be? I'm very hesitant to say that there's ever a ceiling for any candidate, especially one like Trump. But I will say that a majority of voters don't want to vote for him. And um, that obviously can change. But remember that Donald Trump has not led in a poll in over a month. Is it possible that he somehow does pull some magic rabbit out of his hat and change his numbers around? Of course it's possible. But I, I, would, I wouldn't give you a specific number except to say that a majority of voters do not like him and a majority of voters strongly do not like him. If you look at a number of metrics, if you look at his unlikability, if you look at how far he is in what, everything we've been talking about, yeah, it all seems to stack up against Trump. And yet Dukakis led by, what, 17 points before the conventions. I mean, that is the precedent to think about, I, I believe. Sure. I mean, look, the polls at this point haven't always been predictive, and that is part of the reason why we have Trump, depending on which model you look at, it's somewhere between roughly a 20% and 30% chance of winning the general election. That's not nothing. He could win. It would not be the most shocking thing in the world. I'd be more shocked if I walked out and on the Fifth Avenue and got shot by Donald Trump, though he has, in fact, yeah. threatened to kill someone. <laughs> Maybe you're the guy he was talking about. <laughs> Maybe, given some of the things I've written. But at the same time, if you look at the 88 campaign, what was going on in that campaign that allowed George H.W. Bush to be able to defeat Michael Dukakis despite trailing at the polls at this point? Number one, Dukakis wasn't really well known. The president, the incumbent president's approval rating, which was a Republican president, was in the 50s. Uh, The same now with Barack Obama. So that actually, in the way it helped Bush in 88, it probably would help Clinton in 2016. And then the third thing that I think is very key when you're talking about all of this is the state of the economy. In 1988, the economy was doing pretty gosh darn well. So that helped elevate Bush. This year, in order for the economy really to help Trump to get him in a lead, you probably would need a below average economy when you look across different metrics. In fact, what we have is about an average economy. So when you look across all of those metrics, it's not just the polls that say it, it's everything else that also tends to indicate, hey, Donald Trump probably shouldn't win this campaign. That doesn't mean he won't. 
He still very well could. But the bet at this point would be for Donald Trump not to be the winner in November. That's right. And I would also say that if someone trotted out the Dukakis argument, hey, there's someone with a huge lead who lost it. You could also trot out the FDR versus Alf Landon argument, right? Hey, Duke, uh, FDR only led by four points in sure. September. And sure. he wound up winning by 24. Uh, what was it? As Maine, so goes Vermont, I believe is the old <laughs> saying. But, but I think that, of course, is very important. Past precedent only gets us so far. And we need to be careful when trying to draw too many conclusions from the past, the past is to guide us, but the future is to be lived. Yes, words to live by, a guiding light for these troubled times. It's Harry Enten, senior political writer and analyst for 538. Thank you, Harry. Thank you. And now the spiel, army training, sir. It's been too long since we've played any ditties by America's favorite funny man of yesteryear. So I'd like to kick off my discussion today with this line from Jerry Lewis. Oh, the Navy gets the gravy, but the Army gets the sleeves. The Army gets the sleeves. More sleeves than it wants. It is mandated. Alone among the service branches, the Army does not allow soldiers to roll down their sleeves. Soldiers have not been allowed to roll them down since the Army Combat Uniform, the ACU, replaced the Battle Dress Uniform, the BDU, in 2005. It's 11 years of non-sleeve rolling. Official explanation. The shirt was made to protect soldiers' forearms from the sun, insects, and other elements. The ACU wasn't designed to have rolled sleeves. It has Velcro pockets and a pen pocket on the left cuff. Because apparently we are intent on turning our fighting men and women into a couple of poindexters. But now, now, there was a 10-day pilot program. There was a massive implementation. Official word. Sleeves may be opened and cuffed inward above the wrist and forearm. This is something called camo out. You have to be showing your camo, so you have to roll it just right. Because it goes camo, uncamo, camo, uncamo. We want the camo side. And this way... Everything up until your forearms will blend in with the foliage, sand, or terrain of whatever theater you are in. This comes on the heels, well, the elbows, of an update to Army Regulation 671, which are new tattoo rules. Used to be a max of four tattoos. Now, go nuts on the tats. Well, the arm tats and the leg tats. Still no neck tattoos, no racist, sexist, or derogatory tattoos. What about Yankees suck? Does that count as derogatory? Yankees suck? And the Marines are also changing with the times, but this time, the rank and file is a little upset. 15 jobs have been renamed to eliminate man, the word man in the job, and replace it with Marine. For instance, basic field artillery man is now basic field artillery Marine. Infantry assault man is now infantry assault Marine. Fire support Marine. A lot of these new titles sound like something Hulk or Frankenstein might say. Fire support Marine. Or in order, infantry. Assault Marine! Shockingly, some Marines are insulted to be called Marines. Of the nearly 500 comments on the Facebook page called Terminal Lance, which is like a Marine water cooler, I found these comments. Marines is a fucking joke now. Hopefully someone will come along and save it. Too bad the top brass doesn't have the balls to stand up for their Marines. Well, this infantry man here has a big fuck you for SecNav. 
That's the Secretary of the Navy. And the Marine officers that failed our Corps. Another guy writes, I hope Secretary Carter, that's Secretary of Defense Ash Carter, Secretary Carter is remembered for dying in a fiery wreck instead of his career of implementing intense divisiveness in the world's greatest fighting forces. What a piece of shit. The few, the proud, the slightly overreacting, maybe. Not every name, not every word man has been replaced with Marine. For instance, anti-tank missile man is now anti-tank missile gunner. Because I guess, you know, the missile man, that did sound a little like the nice couple who had the bungalow next to ours at the beach club. Oh, are the missile men coming? Oh, they're they're so nice. I like her aspect. Anti-tank missile gunner. That is a great name for quadruplets. The Marine official notation went on to say that manpower officer or vertical takeoff unmanned vehicle specialist will still include the word man because it's a part of a word that doesn't describe the Marine doing the job. So manpower is not Marine power or person power or power to the people. As of this taping, there has been no similar change in the Air Force, which still has airmen, or the Navy, which still has that seminally gendered noun, Seamen. Though without seamen, where would any of us be? Just producer Mary Wilson often cuffs a single leg. A shout out to Peter Stuyvesant. Executive producer of Slate podcast Steve Lichtai doesn't cuff or roll, but he has been known to pop a collar in his day, though never his own. Andy Bowers, chief content officer of the Panoply Network, screams at underlings who wear fanciful shoulder garnishments epaulette epithets. The gist, I'm wearing a dickie right now. Oomperu depperu duperu, and thanks for listening.